So I started designing that and I experimented for a while. And over the 4th of July weekend of that year, I had all the pieces together and I fired my engine and I chose the 4th of July weekend because I was afraid I was going to break the internet. So I thought at least it would be not as noticeable. <laughs> and uh, I think I only broke New Zealand. The connection to New Zealand was so teeny that people noticed. <laughs> I collected several million pages in two or three days. And several million pages was more than anybody had ever seen. Right. So this is sort of the beginning of the story of Alta Vista. That was Louis Monier laughing about breaking the internet connection to New Zealand, as in the entire country of New Zealand. He did it while building Alta Vista, the world's first truly consumer-grade, widely used and reliable search engine. So this was well before Google became a company and a verb that was synonymous with the term web search. Now, if you're wondering how one person could possibly break the internet connection to an entire country, or if you're wondering what the world looked like before internet search was even a thing, then you're gonna love this episode of Webmasters. Ready to hear the story? Great, let's get dialed in. Welcome to the very first episode of Webmasters. My name is Aaron Dinan and I am your host. I teach innovation and entrepreneurship at Duke University where I also study the history of the World Wide Web and internet businesses. This podcast, as you can probably guess, is an extension of that work. Through my research, I've discovered that the people who built and continue to build the internet businesses that have completely revolutionized the world are some of the most fascinating people you've probably never heard of they got some incredible stories. I believe those stories need to be told, and I hope this podcast can be a place for it to happen. We've already recorded lots of interviews, so I can promise we've got some truly amazing stories in store for you, and we're kicking things off with a bang because on this episode, we're hearing from Louis Monier, the man lots of early internet adopters describe as the father of internet search. How's that for a cool title to put in your LinkedIn bio? Before we can hear Louis' story, I want to take 20 seconds and thank an amazing partner and supporter who's helped make this podcast possible. That would be Latona's LLC. Latona's is a boutique mergers and acquisitions company that specializes in helping buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses. So if you got a profitable e-commerce shop, SaaS business, content website, anything like that, and you're thinking about selling it, contact the team at Latona's. It's what they do for a living. They're great at it, and they know how to make sure you can get the business's full value. Alternately, if you're interested in running your own internet business, but don't want to start from scratch, check out latonas.com. That's L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. They're listing new businesses all the time. Find the perfect one for you. All you got to do is a quick search. Hey, and speaking of quick searches, let's get back to Louis Monier, one of the guys who actually made quick internet searches a thing, if you can believe it ever wasn't a thing. But at some point, people had to invent it, right? And Louis was one of the most important contributors. In order to understand how and why he got involved, we need to understand a bit more about what the internet and the World Wide Web looked like before people could easily search it. I think my first real exposure to the internet was probably in 1980. I was visiting Carnegie Mellon University. I spent a month there. And then the following year, I, I moved. I actually went there as a, as a postdoc for a few years. And 
That was my first exposure to the internet. I used it. I played online games. I, I realized you could, uh, you know, print on a remote printer. I started using email on a regular basis. And that was, that was a revelation. Okay, quick internet history lesson. In 1979, 1980-ish, the time frame Louis is talking about here, the public internet didn't even exist. In fact, the term internet had only been first used a few years earlier in 1974 when a man by the name of Vint Cerf, I hope I'm saying that right, it's spelled C-E-R-F, Vint Cerf, published the concept of an internet transmission protocol, basically the core technological underpinnings of what would become the internet. So in 1979, I believe Louis would have actually been using ARPANET, which was the precursor to the internet developed by the US Department of Defense. And I should also add that the World Wide Web, which is an information system that, like email, exists on top of the internet and uses its own protocol, was still a decade away. It wouldn't be created until 1989 by Sir Tim Berners-Lee over in Europe, and wouldn't become broadly used until even a few years after that. So yeah, I think it's safe for us to call Louis Monnier an early adopter, and he was excited because he could see what the internet was going to become. Everything was nascent. I mean, everything was a little bit visible. I took a job at Xerox Park, which was sort of the famous research center. That's Xerox Park, P-A-R-C, which stands for Palo Alto Research Center. It's out in California. It's the place responsible for, among other things, laser printers, graphical user interfaces, WYSIWYG text editors, object-oriented programming, which is basically the underlying structure for most of the software programs you know and love and use just about every minute of your day. So again, we got Louis hanging around some of the earliest big moments in internet and digital history. But if you ask him, he actually feels like he arrived a little late. It was the tail end of it. The people who had done all the innovation, all the discoveries, and I'm going to list a few of them, you know, they, they just literally, they hired me and then they disappeared by the time I, I showed up. So that was an interesting time. I mean, those people had invented so many things we take for granted today, but they had to, you know, literally somebody woke up one morning, took a shower, and then showed up at work saying, oh, guys, I'm ready under the shower. Maybe we could write a program in which we could do, like, you know, pretty text like newspapers. You know, let's call that uh, desktop publishing. Literally, that's what was happening in that lab. And the same thing for images. And, hey, I have an idea for a game that, you know, you and I could play on different computers. And we would see each other and shoot at each other. And they did that. And so on and so on and so on. So, so th this is the fun of being in the very early part of something. It's this completely, you know wide open field. You wake up with a crazy idea. Most of them are crazy. A few of them you don't know yet, but they will actually have a huge impact. Okay, so you're literally at the famous Xerox Park Research Center using the internet before the World Wide Web even existed. But most people using the internet these days don't even realize the internet and the World Wide Web are two different things. Can you describe a bit what the internet was like before the web? It was minimalist. It was basically email. You had some way of transferring files, but of course those files better be small. So you might as well do it through email. The first worm, you know, the first virus, that was like a new thing. It's like, oh my God, bad things can happen just by checking your email. That was a new concept. There was very little at the time because there was no real internet, right? This was the internet. This was connecting a few universities and a few research centers together the general public didn't have access to this. 
it was a very special world. You had to be in one of those universities in order to even get an email. And then things start picking up steam, as you said, you know, Tim Berners-Lee. Again, he's talking about Sir Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web. It was a big decision to be taken. Are we keeping this as a toy for research and and academia, or do we open it up to the public? And the right decision was taken, which was, you know, just open the gates and just see what happens. And a lot happens, right? So this was early to mid-90s, and that's when I realized from the lab that there was something big happening, and it was moving fast. And then how did you go from tinkering around on this little internet thing to thinking about search and ultimately building a tool to help people find stuff on the web? The very first search engines happened. The very, very first ones were actually academic. There was something called Webcrawler. There was something called Lightcost. Those things were, I mean, in a sense, toys. They were great experiments. They were actually useful for a while. And then the public caught on, and those things would just collapse. They just like couldn't get to scale. But the need was there, and I was always the curious guy, and I'm like, we need something better, and maybe I should try to build it. So that was sort of my introduction to the web. I probably missed a lot of other aspects of it. You know, I didn't try to hack anything. (laughs) I didn't think of buying every domain name there was, (laughs) which I should have. You know, there there were a lot of other aspects of, of the early web, but there is more and more knowledge and more and more junk, but there's also quite a bit of good knowledge in there. It was mostly in the form of knowledge. People were not thinking much about social anything. So it was, it was mostly a place where you sort of put knowledge down, advertise yourself a little bit. Commerce was just starting to pick up. And so the big problem was, how do you find that stuff? And that was the genesis of search engines. Could you take a moment and describe what those early search engines were like? Uh, do you even remember them? No search engine was doing the job. I mean, as soon as a new search engine would come, you know, it was instantly swamped and it would take forever before you got an answer. And who was going to pay for more servers because they were free? InfoSeq, I think was the first one, tried to charge for response, but they had a hard time as well. So there was definitely a, a scale issue. In case you didn't catch that, Louis was basically getting frustrated by the search engines he was using and said to himself, I think I should just build something better. And so he did. First of all, how incredible is that? Second, this is a point in Louis' story that's worth highlighting because it's a good reminder of what kinds of things should be spurring entrepreneurial innovation. I meet lots of people who say, gosh, I really want to be an entrepreneur, so let me think as hard as I can until I come up with a great idea. But that's rarely the right approach. You want to be more like Louis, who got frustrated with something he was actively using that wasn't doing the job well enough. And when he looked around for a better option, he saw other people were equally frustrated and there wasn't anything better. So then he said, well, maybe I should try to build it. Of course, there's always more that goes into the success of a new product than just being able to build a cool new technology. And for me, someone fascinated by the logistics of internet businesses, This is where the story of AltaVista and its ability to successfully scale starts getting really interesting. So this is the real story. (laughs) So it was inside the research lab that belonged to a company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. Think of it as a baby IBM or an IBM wannabe at the time. So they were doing mainframes and they were based on the East Coast. We were the West Coast labs, so very far away from the mother ship. And DEC was having a hard time. 
they were going through some pretty tough times because they were not adapting as fast as they should have. So they were missing a lot of boats. And the press was pretty bad. And I spent several months, this was in early 95, just toying with the idea of what would it take to build a search engine? Well, it's not that hard. I mean, one, you need to go and crawl the web. So you start from a few pages, and then you find all the links on those pages, and go collect those pages, and then you find the links on those pages, and keep doing it, and try to not go around in circles, but that's about it. And you get as many pages as you can, and nobody had any clue about how many pages were, or how many different websites there was. I mean, nobody had an idea. So you had to crawl the web, and then you had to index what you find. So you need to take the content of those pages, and you know, build literally the equivalent of an index, something where you can go search and say, you know, I'm looking for this world and that world. Which pages have that? And which one should I show first? So you just built this amazing new search engine. Now, putting aside how ridiculously cool that is, I, I got to ask, why did you call it AltaVista? Oh, boy. Well, first it was an internal project. So, you know, I run my new uh, design over the 4th of July weekend, get our web pages, get the index, play with it, show that to my friends in the research lab. People start going crazy. This is great. We need to do something. And one day, I have to turn off the machine in order to upgrade something, and my inbox just explodes. People from the East Coast were going, Louis, I'm in sales, and I cannot live without this thing. Put it back. <laughs> so I'm like, huh, okay. I, I thought it was just like a couple of researchers, you know, on the same floor that were using this thing. So that's when I got the idea of trying to push it out. So we needed a code name. And I don't know why I was thinking, you know, like we see the whole web. So, you know, like seen from the mountain. And I don't know why this, this thing popped in my head, like Alta Vista. Sounds Spanish-ish. I was hoped that it was correct Spanish, view from above, something like that. So that was the internal code name. Then we decided to launch... I'm going to be nasty, but, you know, some really incompetent people decided to pay some branding people to come up with a better name. And the name was Gotcha, and the logo looked like bird poop. And so one day before the launch, eventually somebody lost it and said, okay, we cannot launch with this. We're going with AltaVista. And we had 24 hours to have somebody, you know, front of a friend, threw together the logo, which was this sort of blue mountain, which I liked. It was cool. And we had to rename everything AltaVista <laughs> uh, in about 24 hours because gotcha, no. <laughs> that was not going to fly. <laughs> I mean, I kind of think the name gotcha is pretty cool for a search engine, but, but fine. AltaVista is a pretty good name too. Now, the basic mechanics of building a search engine sound simple enough, at least how you described it. But as we know, there were, you know, there were other search engines before you built AltaVista. So what was different about your search engine versus those other ones? Basically, DEC being a hardware company was trying to reverse his luck by coming up with a new architecture, new chip architecture. And they were designing some pretty beefy servers for the time. And they needed to convince people that those servers actually had some value. And once I demonstrated the search engine to the company first, you know, after, you know, experimenting and crawling the web and crawl more. And, and, and I had access to one server, one big server in order to play. I convinced DEC that, you know, we should release this to the public and this would be good PR for the company. So I basically had access to free expensive servers to try to generate positive PR for the company. And that worked beyond the wildest dream. 
that was the only positive PR the company had for several years until literally it was sold to Compaq. <laughs> Didn't save the company, but it was at least generating positive PR. And there's the big secret to AltaVista's success versus other search engines, what business school folks might call the competitive advantage. They had unique access to infrastructure. Louis had direct access to million-dollar servers at a time when people just didn't have those kinds of resources. There was no AWS, so nobody could click a few buttons and scale up to support millions of new users. But lucky for Louis, and for millions of early internet users, including myself, the company he worked for, DEC, was producing big, beefy servers and was willing to let him leverage those servers for AltaVista as more and more people started using it. At the same time, AltaVista's existence as a way of demonstrating the power of DEC servers also contributed to its eventual downfall. As part of DEC, AltaVista didn't need to be profitable, which also meant it never got the resources it would need in order to keep innovating as more and more users adopted it. We launch, the thing just explodes. Every day you get more traffic than the previous one, and then you sort of beg for more servers, and you put a new server in, and it keeps going, and so on. So we play that game for a while. Um, I'm going to concentrate on the positive. I think it had a really good impact. So it was really, I would say, a force for good for two or three years before basically spam started damaging it. But I've met so many people who say, oh, yeah, I remember it was my first search engine. I loved it. I used nothing other than that. And eventually I switched to Google. That's the part that I got hooked on. This was really sort of a monument on the internet, something that was useful. I call it, you know, a web service. And so that was very cool. But eventually, you know, the tech was not, we didn't have the means to read further tech. So spam started really getting to us. And we didn't have the technical means to do this. And this is when you know, a couple of guys at Stanford were having some ideas and were experimenting and that became Google. That's when it was time to, you know, abandon ship and do something else. Oh, gosh, I, I actually remember those days. Uh, it got harder and harder to find what I was looking for on AltaVista because the earliest results were increasingly people who'd, I guess they'd obviously figured out how to game the system. So from my end, it, it seems like you must have had some relatively rudimentary search algorithms that were easy enough to trick. And so people, what, started tricking them, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the characteristics of the early internet is that it was mostly techies, you know, who were thinking about it and experimenting. And they live in a world where, of course, when you use technology, it's only for good. I mean, who would use technology for a bad reason? So you don't think, you know, immune system, which you should. <laughs> and then you realize one morning that you don't have an immune system, but there are 100,000 people out there trying to get their site to be number one, and they will do what it takes to get there. And in the process, they'll drag you down. And that's basically what happened to that site. And why didn't you solve that problem? Was it a case of you not wanting to, or you saw Google coming along and realized what it was a fight you couldn't win? Was it something else? We didn't have the resources. You know, it was sort of dragging on. It'd been like three years. There was no way to attract really the smart people. The smart people were, you know, outside and doing other startups. So that's when I lost interest and left. So out of curiosity, do you, do you ever regret that? I mean, do you ever look at Google and think to yourself, ah, that, that could have been me? Well, no, 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 that, no. I have infinite respect for those guys. Way back when I was at Alta Vista, one afternoon, my phone rings. And there's this guy who says, hey, my name is Larry Page, and I'm from Stanford. And, uh, you know, we've done this little thing, and we're trying to set it for a million dollars. And my answer was basically, well, I don't have any budget. Sounds great, but I don't have any budget. So... <laughs> 
And so I hope that Jerry and Sergei are forever thankful for not buying your because they would have died. I mean, the, the project would have died. So uh, that's my contribution to Google is, you know, making sure they were not bought <laughs> too early. They did the right thing and they, they didn't have the shackles that I had. Um, they could, you know, they could turn it into a real company. They could raise money. They could, uh, you know, and they did everything right. I mean, they did so many things right. And same thing. They had a very clear vision from the beginning. They knew where this was going to go. WT. F. I believe that's what the kids these days would say. Louis Monnier and Deck had the opportunity to buy Google for $1 million from Larry Page and Sergey Brin way back when they were still developing it at Stanford. And they passed. I don't know about any of you, but speaking for myself, I made a lot of mistakes in my life and none of them remotely compare to that. But Louis takes it all in stride and, you know, to be fair, he's done some pretty cool things since AltaVista. After that, I spent four years at eBay. You know, I was running a small research group, and we did a ton of interesting stuff, but the most interesting one was recreating from scratch the search engine for eBay. And that was something, because it didn't look like AltaVista at all. It was a different beast. It had to be optimized for other things. Like, when you do a big search engine, like an AltaVista and like Google, well, you crawl the web, and then a while later, you crawl it again, in those days, there was no notion of, you know, is it up to date? But when you run eBay, and this was in the you know, very early 2000, well, I mean, the person who just listed that, you know, green vase is expecting to search eBay and find it instantly. Where's my vase? I just posted it, you know, <laughs> said yes, and you said, got it. So where is it? And the search engine was not doing this. So that was one of the requirements. So the requirements were very, very different from internet search. And that was a lot of fun to do that. I mean, we literally wrote the search engine from scratch. Pretty sure it's still in some variation running. Oh my gosh, I was one of those people in the early 2000s listing lots of stuff on eBay. My first company was an eBay store while I was in college. And I remember getting so frustrated when my listings wouldn't show up instantly. And I also remember when that stopped happening. So clearly, Louis was unwittingly having a big impact on my life all along. I suspect he's had one on a lot of your lives as well, maybe through AltaVista or eBay, but he's also had stints with Airbnb, 23andMe, and even spent a bit of time working for Larry and Sergey over at Google. In case you're wondering what he's up to now, Louis is passionate about big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. In fact, he sees that area of research and development as the next big greenfield opportunity, much like what the internet was back in the early 90s to be there at the very beginning of the internet and, you know, everything was a new idea and this sort of open field, right? You just land and this is a desert continent. What are you going to find? What are you going to do there? Turns out I feel I've, I've felt that three times. So the first time was before the internet, computers were starting to become, you know, there was that phase of what can we do with this computing thing, which normally is only for technical people and, I don't know, government stuff and maybe big banks, but why do you need one of those in your living room, right? So you were mostly you and your machine and a stack of floppy disks. What could you do with that? And that was fun to watch. Then the second time was the internet. We were going from early 80s to early 90s and seeing the explosion that happened. And the third time is five years ago, starting five years ago, with machine learning, also known as AI, but I prefer machine learning, where same thing, 
I mean, this was a very small specialized domain for a very long time and sort of convergence of all the right things. Machines were getting big enough. There was enough data floating around the web to feed that beast. Enough people were interested. And, and when that happened, and all those things happened around sort of 2012, I think 2012 to 2015 is when sort of the inflection point happened. The same thing happened with machine learning. What are we going to do with this thing? And we're still in the middle of it. Still in the middle of the machine learning and AI inflection point as the technologies become mainstream. That's Louis' assessment. So just like he did back in the late 80s and early 90s, he's placed himself in the middle of what he believes are going to be the next collection of world-changing technologies. I have no idea what he's going to come up with next, but I have a feeling it's going to change a lot of people's lives. When that happens, hopefully we can get him back here on Webmasters to tell us all about it. In the meantime, we got lots of other great episodes coming your way because there are a lot more people who have helped build and shape not just the World Wide Web, but the world we live in because the web is such an important part of it. To hear those stories, be sure to subscribe to Webmasters wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, and while you're subscribing, take a moment to add a five-star review or, you know, whatever the highest rating is that you can give us on your platform of choice. Those reviews help people discover us, which in turn gives us the cachet we need to get more incredible guests. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and tell us what you thought about this episode. Our handle is at WebmastersPod. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron Dinnan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. I also publish lots of content about entrepreneurship on Medium.com. So search for my name there to see everything I've written. And I want to give a big old thanks to our guest, Louis Monier, for sharing the story of Alta Vista. I also want to thank our amazing audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, and our amazing partner and sponsor, Latonas. Don't forget to check them out at latonas.com. Last and hey, certainly not least, I want to thank all of you for listening and supporting this podcast. I don't know exactly where it's going to end up taking us, but I do know if this first conversation with Louis was any indication, we're going to discover some really incredible stuff. I know I can't wait. I hope you can't wait either. But I guess we're going to have to because right now, well, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye. <laughs>